Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Gabe Luna Osteski of Brain Trust. Gabe, say hello to the listeners and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Uh, Gabe Luna Osteski here, co-founder and CRO of Brain Trust. Just kind of go back in the rewind machine. I've been unemployable since I was age 18. That's when I started my first company when I was going to school down in Cal Poly. Uh, I started and ran a house painting company over the course of a summer to pay my way through college. Turns out I was pretty good at it over the summer. Uh, and then I taught other college kids how to start and run their own house painting companies. And in that second year, ran a million dollar business and decided to leave college where I was kind of like learning about the, the theory of business and pursue the actual running of a business every single day. And so, put cash in your pocket. Yeah, totally. Start to uh, make, make sure I didn't come out of college with a bunch of loans. So ran that company. We actually ended up franchising it and and got a couple of uh, folks going with it. And then then honestly, I decided I didn't want to run a house painting company for the rest of my life. And and me and a friend started a company called Modernize. And, and the, the core idea of, of Modernize was essentially connect homeowners with pre-skinned contractors, roofers, painters, window companies, folks like that, that could then compete for their business. You know, at, at the time we didn't have the term marketplace, but that's essentially what it was. And we bootstrapped that company with our credit cards and home equity lines and ran it out of a garage. And actually, you know, over the course of, I guess it was 12 years, grew it to be the largest uh, home services, largest privately held home services marketplace, and then sold it to a public company called Quinn Street. And then after about two weeks or so of, of you know, reading books and doing yoga and things like that, my, my wife was like, you're annoying me. You got to get out of here. You got to go do something. You're driving me nuts. <laughs> and, uh, and so I honestly, I just started helping some startups that were going through kind of scale challenges or, or like early scale challenges. And the first one I helped was Thumbtack. And then I helped a company called Uber, who some of you may have heard of. And, and kind of one thing led to another. And I I started investing and advising and consulting these companies that what I would call is like post-validation pre-scale and kind of helping them make that transition. And, and all in all, I guess I, I built a little venture capital firm for it to kind of invest my own capital. And all in all, I did about 40 or so companies over the course of four years. And then I, I just really wanted to get back to operating. Uh, you know, the, the job of investor is, is great for a lot of people. I love being a hobbyist, kind of part-time angel investor. Uh, but I really want to get back to making things and building things. And, and a friend, Adam Jackson, came to me with this idea for Brain Trust, which was basically to create a global cooperative of technical talent powered by a crypto token and, and enable big companies to be able to hire uh, talent directly and have that talent essentially own and govern the network through a crypto token. And I just like fell in love with this idea. I think it took me back to my hippie roots and also like turned off all the, all the marketplace ideas and or turned on all the kind of the marketplace brain that I had. And he asked me if I wanted to be an advisor and I said, no, but I'll co-found the company with you. And that was the, that was like a summer of summer of 2019. And then ever since then, we, we've continued to grow brain trust. And it's now the largest decentralized autonomous organization in the world. We have about 200 of the Fortune 1000 using Brain Trust, and we have about 30,000 owners uh, and, and governors uh, around the world through this crypto token. Um, so 
for, for me, like I just really love this idea of giving power and value back to the workers. And, and so that's what I'm working on today. That's great. That's great. So your wife is also an entrepreneur. Yeah, the, t- the two entrepreneur household is, is interesting, right? It, it is. And, and I, I thought before we get too deep into brain trust, what are the advantages or disadvantages of having an entrepreneur as a spouse? I get they would get it, of course, but is it, does that also create challenges? Yeah. Well, first off, like my wife is amazing. So anytime that anyone ever meets her, you should have her on this podcast. Anytime that anyone meets her, they have no interest in talking to me anymore. I was going to say, you, you end up in the witness protection program when she's around. That's it. You're, she's like, who, who's he? Was he the driver? Yeah, yeah. he's the driver. Yeah. She's yeah. amazing. She, you know, she's the first woman in history to create a brand of Scotch whiskey and bootstrapped it, you know, hand to hand, selling bottles at a time and, and grew it up. And then it was sold uh, to a, a large conglomerate. So fantastic story there. And, and yeah, like, you know, we, we've both been on this journey together. I think that there's a few things that are, that are really advantageous is like a, a deep level of understanding for like the pain, the frustration, the uncertainty, the doubt that come along with, you know, putting your thing out into the world, whether it's your art or your business. And so I think there's a lot of compassion that your partner has for, for what you're going through. And, and it's in some ways, it's kind of like, it's a very safe place where you can talk about what you're scared about or what you're fearful about because chances are I've gone through it or she's gone through it. And so there's a, a you know, there's a, a level of intimacy that can come with it. That's, that's really uh, a blessing. I think that the, the hard part about it would be the, honestly, it's like logistics, right? It's kind of weird. Like, you know, we have three kids, so two, two entrepreneurs that are traveling, have different, you know, pretty intense full lives. Somebody's got to make school lunches. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we, like, honestly, it just forced us to get a really great system down that system of like, whatever I'll say, like, you know, scaling the family life, which is like the system for our marriage meetings, the system for like, you know, how do we make 80 or 90 meals a week for our families that are healthy in a relatively small amount of time? How do we balance, you know, busy travel schedules, things like that. So, you know, it just, I think it just forces you to get more organized and forces you to be better when you, when you have those kind of constraints. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And yeah, I, I know your wife as well, and she is she is amazing. So we'll have her on the on the show as well, and we'll get the point counterpoint going. We'll we'll see how much of what you say she's she completely <laughs> finished. We'll do. Uh, <laughs> so, from what I understand, you know, I get it that you would like fall in love with an idea. With a lot of of, of our guests, I've asked them: is it is it something that consumes you, or engages you, or scares the crap out of you? What part of that is like unavoidable, like you can't say no. So uh, the answer to all of those things would be yes. Um, I think one of the ways that I've talked to other founders about the experience of like finding that thing, whatever it is, you know, I've seen uh, the pattern that I've seen doesn't always happen this way, but a pattern that I've seen as an investor and also as an entrepreneur is like, either it's something that just really pisses you off, like something that's broken in the world, something that's some wrong that's been done to you or your family member, something that's like, deeply personal and like lights a big fire in your belly. So that's that's like kind of I'll say category one. And then the the category two is this like a what if the world was this way? So this this like imagining a world of possibility that could exist if this thing exists. So it's there they can both be driven by optimism, but but sometimes it's either something that really pisses you off or sometimes it's just something that you just 
just deeply believe should exist in the world. And, and usually that first part, or at least what I've seen in my own experience is that these things start pretty theoretical. You know, it's like they start, I always say like, they kind of start up here and it's like the pros and cons. It's very logical kind of exercise that your brain goes through, especially if you're, you know, somewhat heady like me. And then the, the, the thing that I watch for is basically how does it move from like, from, from your head down to your heart and into your belly. And that's, that's usually a sign for me when it has like staying power and when it's like in my, the fibers of my body. And that's when I know it's like an idea for Gabe versus, Hey, this is just a good idea. It should exist in the world. Or I'm annoyed and frustrated that this thing doesn't exist. Those things can be great ideas, but for other people. And like when it gets down into my heart and into my belly, that's, that's when I know that this is like something that I need to work on or that I like that, that is a match for me as like founder market fit or founder product fit. I love this distinction because I work with um, incubators. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find is they have the optimistic uh, viewpoint. They haven't done anything yet, but they've got this idea that they love. And if it stays at hearts, fairies, and unicorns, it never goes anywhere because it's like a romantic sensation as opposed to once it's in their belly and they can't, they can't shake it. Yeah. Then they're, then they're ready to do something and they got a chance to stay. But I've, I've noticed the hearts, fairies and unicorns when they, they have a tough time because when it gets ugly, oh, it's supposed to be my calling. And you go, yeah, your calling's got hard work written all over it because yeah. any startup's got hard work written all over it. So oh, that's great. That's great. You've been on many entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial journeys, some involving scale, some just maybe something short of scale, but you know the journey and everybody loves the success story. I'd love to ask you the, maybe the biggest, biggest time you stepped in a bear trap or just, you know, hired the absolute wrong person that almost killed the company or what was the biggest misstep you had along these journeys that you're now grateful for the tuition that you paid at the, at the time. You weren't grateful at the time, but it turned out to be a great tuition paid. Yeah, yeah, totally. The, I, I always call those things like learned wisdom. Those like painful moments that like, help you to develop, develop some principles to live by or to work by. I, I think if I, if I was to go back in the rewind machine, there's one that really stands out for me in, in when we were building Modernize. And it's still like, to this day, it drove my investment thesis. It drove like what stage I would advise and help companies with. And also like a framework that I apply to the companies that I build today. And, and so the mistake, I'll, I'll provide the framework first and then I'll kind of provide the mistake that I made and, and try to tie the two together. So I think so often, especially in Silicon Valley, everyone wants to talk about scale, right? It's like the sexy topic and, and everyone wants to have like scale problems, but, but most of the time they have like validation problems. And so they confuse early validation for being ready to scale. And then they're like, okay, let's step on the gas. And, and, you know, in a business or especially in a startup where you've raised capital from outside investors, you're basically, you're, you're racing against two things like time and running out of money. And, and usually they're, they're related. And so when you step on the gas, you, you dramatically lower your runway and your time to be able to figure out which way is up, down, sideways, right? So if I, if I apply that to, like, how did I learn that experience? Is it was, we were building Modernize and we were bootstrap, right? So this was like money coming out of our pockets on our credit cards, like on our equity lines. And there was like, there was no safety net for 
And so we were building it and, and we, we thought that we had like just add water. We thought we had it, kind of the unit economics figured out. We thought we had repeatability figured out. We thought we had like a pre very predictable model that we could essentially just add water to. And so we staffed up like 25 salespeople over the course of about three months. I think we went from, let's say five salespeople to 30 salespeople in the, in the course of three months. And, and then started to put them all on the phones, right? And immediately we started to see like some early signs that we were right. Just like, hey, call volumes going up, like deal volumes going up. We're starting to break records like week after week after week after week. And we're just like getting excited, getting excited, getting excited. And then like we got slapped in the face with the, the hardcore reality, which was deal volume going up and to the right looks great. Retention got cut in half. So the, the customer value got cut in half, but we're paying commissions based on what the customer values were before. So basically now you're, you're paying like two times to four times what you should be paying to acquire a customer. And, and we looked at the numbers and like, oh my God, if we don't change this like next week, we're going to run out of money, like in less than 30 days. And so I've like made one of the more difficult challenges, more difficult decisions, which is like, we had to lay off all the salespeople and I had to go back to selling to figure out a repeatable, predictable model. And so it was like, I call this thing speeding tickets. And so we got like this enormous speeding ticket and, and the consequences was not only that we had to have those hard decisions and take people's jobs away, but also that like, I felt like I had to take five steps back and actually I go back to doing that job that I thought I was out of. And that's I think, the challenge of those speeding tickets. And also like that principle that I learned, which is like, you know, you can't scale until you upshift until you kind of make this repeatable, predictable model. And it's actually valuable to take some extra time there to really perfect that. Cause when you go into that scale mode, it's very hard to turn the ship. Yeah. And it'll expose every, crack in your system that you didn't know you had. Yeah. Yeah. So curious, you brought up this, the sales dilemma. I see a lot of organizations that because the salespeople are paid on gross revenue, uh -huh. they get exactly what you, you suggested. You get inefficiencies when they say, Hey, you got to pay me. I booked a client and you go, yeah. but you pissed them off. So they're never coming back again. That's not great revenue for us. So we're going to pay you on that one job. Yeah. And you cost us reputation. We got three bad reviews from that. How do you, how do you incentivize or the theory I've talked about with a lot on the show is that structure normally crushes culture because structure includes pay structure, how you pay people optimizes what they work on you can say, uh, oh, our culture is all about this, this, and this. But if you pay them to do do things and yep. optimize their income, they will optimize yep. for their personal for income. Sure. How do you incentivize or pay the people that produce revenue in your organization? Yeah, what I've found is that it's it's really valuable to split the, the if you think about the commissions that, they, that people earn if you're looking at a sales organization. You can split some on like the upfront bookings and revenue, but then you can make a bigger percentage on like net revenue retention or revenue growth, depending on the role, whether they're like, you know, like somebody that's just closing deals or somebody that's doing like account growth retention, that's that split might be different, but it's always a split. 
And that way you can, you show them two incentives, which is, Hey, it's not just important to sign new customers. You get a bulk of your money by signing good customers that stay and grow. And so, you know, that, that percentage may be different for every company. It's, you know, sometimes it's 20% upfront in your bookings and 80% on the account growth and retention. If that is your kind of business, if you're a land and expand model. But I think the point is that like a, a split is really valuable and, you know, the split could change depending on the company. Hmm. This model is fascinating because you're right. You're right. It's anybody, not just salespeople will optimize because they've got prices to put on their kids and private school tuition to pay. They go, how do I make the most money? I'm going to, I'm going to game the system this way. So oh, that's great. Curious. You obviously recognize you're unemployable by 18. I'm, I'm surprised it took you that long. But uh, it's, it's, it's great. Does that go along with a risk profile, like a 1 to 10, Elon being a 10, and 1 being, what, cash in the freezer or cash between two mattresses? Is that a risk profile? Is that an attitude or a mindset? Or what goes along with that idea that, you know, I'm not built to be in a traditional company with somebody I have to report to and show up every day and have mandatory meetings and all that all that stuff that happens in, in bigger organizations. You know, I think that, uh, well, for, first, like culturally growing up, I didn't know a single person that had a normal job. I grew up on a matriarchal hippie commune in Northern California where, you know, people were farmers and carpenters and made tinctures and did homeschooling. So every single person was kind of a solopreneur. It wasn't that big of a leap for me to like, think about doing something on my own. What was the big leap was like, how did I end up building a technology companies in Silicon right. Valley when I didn't right. have internet or computer or TV, or, you know, even a bathroom in my house for, you know, <laughs> some of the years that we lived there. Well, that's a little bit of an aside. It wasn't that big of a jump for me. Right. Uh, I didn't grow up with parents that, you know, worked at, you know, a big five consulting company or something right. like that. So, so right. it wasn't that, wasn't that scary of a leap for me. On your point about risk, you know, it's funny. I actually had this conversation with a, with a friend of mine. I was asking him, what do you think about like entrepreneurs? Is it, do they have a higher tolerance for risk? In a similar vein of, of your question. He, and he answered it in an interesting way. He said, actually, I just think that entrepreneurs assess risk differently. So what might traditionally be considered risk, they don't see as risk because they see an opportunity to build something that other people didn't do or, or see a way to, to start something that they want to exist in the world. If I was to go back and, you know, and look at my experience of starting brain trust, like I was advising all these companies, I was investing in companies. Like I had a really good thing going and I stopped doing all of that to, to like on a, on a handshake with my friend to be able to go and like work on this company because it felt like I would be risking like my, my, I would say like all of my skills as an operator were atrophying by not building something. And so it felt like a huge risk for me. It's kind of like, I don't know that if you can, if you can climb mountains, like go climb mountains, if you can, you know, make art, go make art. And for me, it felt like a huge risk to not do that. I saw it as an incredible kind of risk reward opportunity. That's like, most likely we're going to be wrong, but if we are right, Here's what might exist in the world when we're done. It was the idea that the risk was in some way connected to, if I don't do this, will I kick myself when somebody else eventually does? Yeah. And the, you know, the, like the downside risk for me, again, it, a little bit of a, a different stage in my life, but like the downside risk for me was like, I'd be fine. 
if I put a few years into this and it didn't work out, then like worst case scenario, I'd have to go get a job or, you know, or, you know, do, do some, something that I wasn't maybe super stoked about to make money to take care of my family. So that didn't seem like that big of a downside. And the upside was not only like getting to build something that I really believed in, but if we were right about what we thought we were right about, you could build an enormous business that could be super valuable. And so that for me, like that's how I assess the risk. The downside just didn't seem that big and the upside seemed, you know, orders of magnitude more. So on a day-to-day basis running your company, do you have an operating risk profile? I'll say it in terms, you're pragmatic or you're opportunistic or you're, because it usually, the, usually people don't say, well, this is a nine, this is a nine, we should do this or not. They go, oh, here's a big opportunity. Well, is opportunity connected to seeing risk and being comfortable with it? How, how, would, you, how would you assess your operating style as it pertains to, to managing or interacting with risk? I mean, again, I think some of, a lot of this is like is highly contextual, depending on the type of business you're building, like whether you're venture funded or not venture funded. So I'll, what I'm speaking to is like I'm building a venture funded, high growth startup, like Silicon Valley style startup, where you are playing for grand slams, not singles or doubles. And you're playing either you hit a grand slam or you go home with nothing. It's not right for a vast majority of businesses, but that that is the playbook that that like I, that we have chosen to play with, right? So outcomes are going to be binary. So in, in that in that scenario, like I want to play all offense and play as minimal amount of defense, the defense that needs to be played. But like you don't, you're not going to win. You're not going to hit like grand slams by playing defense. I don't know if that's the great analogy. Yeah, obviously, yeah, by taking sports. a half swing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> by taking a half swing. Yeah. Right. Half swing. You can't, you can't bunch your way to a grand slam. No, you can't do it. Um, and so for me, it's always a question of like, I can't play no defense, but like I, maybe we play 10% defense, something like that. And everything else has to be offense because that's how you gain market share. That's how you build something that attracts the best talent, the best companies. And so that's usually the question that I'm asking is like, am I playing offense right now? The caveat to that would be like, you know, the environment that we just went through and are going through right now, like companies were forced to go from pure growth mode to, to you know, unit economics, efficiency, operating excellence, and, yeah. and play more defense for a temporary period to kind of shore things up during a time when capital markets are, are pretty dry. And so again, it's it's highly contextual based on the business you're playing and and like what's going on in the macro economy. But but for me, it's always a question of how much offense am I playing? I love that because the riskiest strategy you could deploy would be to play too much defense. Correct. And most people would say, yeah. how can playing defense be risky? And you go, well, if you're in an offensive minded game, yeah, trying to protect the lead, not a good idea. Yeah, there exactly. is no lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Curious, do you optimize for a specific thing as a 50-person team, or do you have different teams optimized for different outcomes at Braintrust? So you do see, like, at the different levels of scale, what I've seen is you start to bifurcate roles and develop more and more specialization. And that usually happens, let's say, the basic benchmarks would be like, you know, when you're sub-10 people, everyone does everything. Right. And then we're like, when you go 10 to 25, there's a little bit more specialization, usually in sales or marketing, um, where you start to get a little bit of specialization. And then when you get to 50, 
you probably bifurcate your sales organization one more time, maybe between like enterprise and small customers or between like new customers and expansion customers. So there's some bifurcation specialization there so that people can create more kind of operating efficiency. And then that kind of continues to happen over and over and over again. And the downside of that, you know, especially as these companies get to, get to like really big scale, if that's the model that you're following is that you end up being these kind of huge waste machines. And also like people don't have the latitude to be able to see a customer experience all the way through and make those changes. So there's this like very delicate balance. When you get too much specialization, there becomes this feeling of like, oh, that's not my problem to solve. Or I just do this one little thing and it's hard for them to see the, the context of the whole picture. And so for us, like our focus has been, let's build where we need absolute specialists, like we have specialists. And then in a, in a lot of the other areas, we build like really high performing and, and highly productive generalists that like know their craft, but that are not trying to just do like just email marketing. Like they actually can see a, a broad array of, of tactics that they can employ. And that's, that's the approach that we've gone with. Again, we're, we're built a little bit of a different way where we're, you know, we have a core operating team and then a very large community that contribute to the project and help it grow. So we don't spend a penny on paid marketing, for instance, like Google turned off our average, they sent us an email a while ago, turned off our advertising account because we don't spend any money on paid advertising. <laughs> I love that. They threw you out. They, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, it was happily, happily fired by Google. I was uh, going to say that that's, that's unheard of with Google. Yeah. For not spending 50% of the money that you raise as a startup on Google and Facebook. Right. So. On Google ads. That's funny. That's funny. There's a theory in scaling that a company can only scale at or beneath the pace that the CEO is scaling themselves. True or not true? Or fair or not fair? You know, I think that these, I mean, and I've experienced this myself, which is like sometimes the business just starts getting going faster and, and at a pace that's very uncomfortable. You know, when you're first starting, you, you have your arms around everything and you see every single thing as kind of, I call it like the editor. And then all of a sudden this thing starts picking up, if you've done it right, it starts picking up momentum. People start working on things that you don't, you don't have your hands in every single little thing. And it's scary, especially for founders that are control freaks, which most of us are. And so there's this, this feeling of like having to let go and trust your people. And it's, it's punctuated by these moments of doing that and like breathing out and like, and giving people more, you know, room to run. And then sometimes realizing that like you should have been more involved. And so those are like the mistakes that you learn along the way, which is like, you don't necessarily, my approach is almost like, this kind of like more and more earned autonomy over time, like where people can build trust and you can like build that feedback loop versus the you know CEOs or founders that just kind of like step back immediately. The, those stories don't seem to go too well in, in at least in the, the, the histories that I've had. One of my CEO clients says the scariest day of his CEO life was when people he didn't know were hiring other people he didn't know. He said, I was walking the halls and I didn't know either one of them. And he yeah. said, did you meet the new marketing lead? And you say, who, who did I? And they say, yeah. yeah, I think they were in the lunchroom today. I think you shook their hand. 
That's our new marketing lead. <laughs> that's I could imagine. That's a little scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and maybe yeah, it's, necessary. It's yeah. just this transition, right? I mean, like I always say, like small companies die. They either become big companies or they go out of business. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just part of the process. You got to get comfortable with it. And it's just just the nature of kind of like things evolving and, and growing. But yes, it, it is very uncomfortable. I've, I've definitely been in that position. It feels weird like when you've worked on something for so long and they, you know, sometimes you don't know the new people's names. Um, and and but, they're running your baby. You go, yeah. what? They're, t- yeah. they're running that project? You go, oh, wow, should I meet yeah. them? Nope, nope, stay out of it. No, nope. you just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's funny, that's funny. What should people know about scaling that I haven't asked you about? You know, I, I think one of the, one of the interesting things to look at in scaling is, is again, when, when you are in that mode, the, the consequences of mistakes and the runway that you have to correct them is, uh, become shorter and shorter and the consequences yeah. become greater and greater. And so I actually think that urgency, like as an operator operating with a sense of urgency in how you are able to like get things done and, and push the business forward is underappreciated because oftentimes when you're at scale, like things slow down in a, in a company and then it gets harder and harder to turn the ship when something's not going well or not going right. And so I think that teams that build speed as like a, a core competency really helps them at scale. And ones that don't have speed as kind of a core competency, it just feels like all of the gears get mucked up when you're scaling. It just everything, the whole company just completely slows down, which is one of the most frustrating things as a founder. Yeah, I could imagine. And it does sometimes feel like you're, you can only be in first gear. You go, we can't go any faster in first gear. We got to have, we got to have other gears and they, and you don't, and some companies don't have them. Yeah. 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 That's tricky. Fun question. We like to ask our guests. If we had a National Geographic film crew follow you around in junior high, seventh and eighth grade, when you know, I've never heard anybody say, oh, I, I, those are my two best years, seventh and eighth. Yeah, it's, my braces were awesome. My pimples were just coming in. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I had a bad haircut that I didn't realize. Um, but if they followed you around for a year and made a 90-minute documentary and said, all right, who would bet on this guy to be a successful operator or CEO? 15 years later, would people have placed futures bets on you for what they had seen in seventh grade? You know, it's funny. I don't know that they knew what I was going to do, but I think it actually in my like eighth grade yearbook, it was like, you know, most likely to succeed and have an island that he lives on. And so <laughs> it's pretty, pretty strange, like growing up, you know, in, in like hippie roots out in the mountains. But, it, but I think maybe was, I was... I played like competitive sports. And so there was this like competitive drive for me that maybe that's, that's how you see those Which things. Is like, as they, yeah. Seems like an oxymoron with growing up in a hippie commune, like competitive. <laughs> yeah. Somebody has to yeah. win. It's not that much fun if you play a game and you, you can't tell if you're winning or losing. Yeah. You know, they, that's what they say. Like kids, kids are who they are, right? Sometimes they, sometimes they, they don't exactly model, model their parents. You know, my mom was a incredible artist. My father was a social entrepreneur and, you know, I became a maybe an enlightened capitalist, but a capitalist nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, but there's no doubt about you're a capitalist. You could be a compassionate, you could be all those other things, but you're a capitalist. No. Yeah, no. yeah, that's great. That's great. So you're saying they would have bet on you? 
maybe they're just jonesing for an invitation to your island. That's all. <laughs> you're wondering, you know, may, if he ever gets one, I, I hope he invites me out. Yeah, I'll vote for him. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, Gabe, thank you for appearing on Genius at Scale. Love your stories. Love your depth of wisdom and experience. It's super helpful for the audience. For our listeners, we look forward to seeing you again on our next episode. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.